Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, February the 12th, 2024, day after Super Bowl. Uh, which is supposed to be a sporting event, although it increasingly seemed as if it was an event for and by celebrities. It's almost as if Beverly Hills went to Las Vegas or Las Vegas became Beverly Hills. We all got, I'm sure, rather tired of (laughs) images of Taylor Swift and Elon Musk. Everybody seems to be there. Beyonce and Jay-Z. Asha and Alicia Keys, who performed at the halftime show. Kim Kardashian, of course, a ubiquitous uh, Beverly Hills style celebrity. Uh, Gwen Stefani and Blake Shelton. Everyone was there except, of course, myself. Um, Celebrity has always been central, it seems, to the American identity, the American economy, American culture. Uh, and sometimes that celebrity is a little bit more dangerous and troubling than perhaps the celebrity and celebrities on show at the Super Bowl yesterday. My guest today has a new book out. It's not about the Super Bowl. It's about real-time spying, Beverly Hills Spy, and it deals with a 20th century celebrity. If it was around today, I think the celebrity probably would have been front and center of many cameras at the Super Bowl. Um, Ronald Drabkin has this new book out. As I said, it's called Beverly Hills Spy, and he's joining us. He's on the road somewhere between Los Angeles and California. Ronald, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. It's out tomorrow. Um, it's already getting great reviews. Uh, Kirkus uh, starred it. Uh, Ronald, have you always been interested in celebrity? I know you're interested in spying, and we'll get to that. What is it about celebrities that seem to make it so essential to the American identity and the American cultural economy? Yeah, I, I maybe have a slightly unique perspective on that. I, uh, you know, I grew up with a lot of celebrity kids uh, out in Los Angeles, and so it was always kind of around. And I never felt it very to be very interesting myself perhaps, but it was just everywhere and, and, and people seemed to be drawn to it as a evergreen kind of thing. So uh, did you grow up in Beverly Hills yourself? You were a Beverly Hills, not a spy, but a kid? Uh, I grew up just outside. Uh, yes. And uh, no, I was certainly not a, uh, in espionage, but, um, but you know, my, my father was. So that was a lot of the uh, relevant background. We'll get to your dad later. Uh, Everybody, of course, has heard of the Kardashians. Most people, including myself, haven't heard of the central character in your new book, Beverly Hills Spy, Frederick Rutland. Tell us about him and how you learned about him. Yeah, he's a a, a fascinating figure of the early 20th, uh, 20th century. So he, you know, he's well known now or become well known, becoming well known now as um, you know, the head Japanese spy on the West Coast of the United States in the run up to Pearl Harbor uh, with his celebrity contacts and such. But um, he got there. Uh, he's, you know, he's English. Um, and uh, he be- originally became famous in World War One. He was the first combat uh, naval aviator. So um, 
1916, there was a very large uh, battle, uh, sea battle between the Germans and the, uh, the British at a place called Jutland. Uh, there was uh, on one side 99 uh, German ships, and on the other side was 150 British ships and, uh, and one, one airplane. And that one airplane was piloted by this fellow, uh, Frederick Rutland, who, um, as a result of his excellence, he became the one pilot selected by the British uh, Royal Navy to do the first combat carrier mission. Yeah, he was known as uh, Rutland of Jutland, uh, appropriately enough, given his heroic role. So I guess, in yeah. a sense, could one think of him as the British Lindbergh? Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's actually a quite a fair... <laughs> hadn't thought of that, Andrew, but yeah, that's actually quite good. Yeah. Charles Lindbergh, of course, uh, another famous pilot, although perhaps in some ways less heroic than... Um, uh, than uh, Frederick Rutland. So it was a man of enormous bravery, fought mm -hmm. the German, uh, the, the German, not the army, but certainly uh, uh, the German uh, uh, air, air fleet single-handedly in World War I and, and lived to uh, survive. He was known as uh, Rutland of Jutland. So how did he, before we get to the spying, how did he get to America? Yeah, uh, it's uh, fairly simply, um, he had become an advisor to the Japanese Navy uh, right after World War One, and um, uh, around you know between the wars, the aircraft technology was advancing very very rapidly. So if you go back to about 1930, the the navies are they have carriers now, but they're still flying these biplanes, these uh, wooden canvas biplanes. They're going maybe 150 miles an hour. Uh, and it was very clear what was happening is the technology is moving very quickly. Uh, within a few years, um, you know, there were the all aluminum monoplanes with very large engines. So, you know, everyone's familiar with the uh, American P-51 Mustang, the British uh, Spitfire or the Japanese Zero. And these were coming quickly. And the Japanese were uh, very interested in getting the latest in, um, in the aircraft technology. And with the U.S. being the, the leader, um, one of them approached uh, Mr. Rutland in London. He was um, he was there. He was he was uh, he was working for his brother-in-law's company and was you know bored to tears. And uh, they said, "We're looking for someone to help us with uh, aircraft technology. And you've always helped us before. You've been wonderful. And um, we'd like you to go to America because that's where we need the the most information." So, did the Japanese recruit him? I mean, he turned into a spy. But did they recruit him as a spy initially, or was he recruited as a uh, a technical consultant who later became a spy. Yeah, I think it's a, uh, Andrew, it's a gray line there, right? Uh, but yes, he was initially a, a technical consultant. And so he went from this, this war hero, First World War hero, went from the UK to, to, to where, to California? Yeah, and uh, they put him in, in Hollywood. Um, and there was, a, there was a good reason for that. Um, Hollywood, Los Angeles area had basically everything the Japanese Navy was interested in. 70% uh, of U.S. aircraft production, uh, all the, not all, uh, other than Boeing, almost all the new aircraft uh, development was there. You know, Lockheed and Douglas come up uh, very fre frequently. Uh, and the U.S. Pacific Fleet was there. You know, the, uh, the, the American ships uh, moved to Pearl Harbor, where they were eventually attacked by the Japanese Navy. But uh, at this time, they were in Los Angeles uh, in the Long Beach Harbor. We've done some shows actually on U.S.-Japanese relations in the 20s and 30s. It still remains quite controversial. 
Mm -hmm. So initially, presumably, Rutland's association with the Japanese was was quite un uncontroversial in the 20s, even if he'd been, quote unquote, a spy or a technical consultant, political consultant. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been that controversial, would it, in the twenties? Had it had it, had it become known publicly? Well, the Japanese did a, a very well. I wouldn't say it's the most clever bit of subterfuge, but um, they they uh, hired him uh, in name. He was a consultant to the Mitsubishi Company. Okay, um, and so the British uh, folks found that a little troubling, but not overly troubling. But he he wasn't. He was working directly for the Imperial Japanese Navy. Um, and the British never found this out. They never knew. Um, what the Japanese did is they installed him at a, a, a house near the beach in a place called Zushi, which is quite close to the uh, main Japanese naval base in Yokosuka. Uh, it's where the Japanese admirals uh, lived then and, and live today, um, right over the hill. And at that time, the Japanese were updating their aircraft carriers, which weren't working very well. Uh, the Akagi and the Kaga were the two um, lead carriers in the Pearl Harbor attack. And um, basically the, the Japanese sailors uh, would go over to his house. They'd walk over uh, a couple times a week. They would do it in plain clothes uh, and get advice on how to update uh, their carriers. So if the British had found that out, uh, I think there would have been um, a lot more problems. But he was living in the, in the U.S. and then he went to Japan. I mean, what's he got yeah. to do with the British? Uh, <laughs> well, um, initially his technology was all from from Britain, right? So he had, you know, been a Royal Navy veteran. Was he? Um, was he? And there were many ex-servicemen out of the sec- the First World War who, who, who yeah. were like this. Was he? And Hitler, of course, is the, the best example, I guess. Not mm-hmm. the British, but of the German army. Was he? Prof- did the First World War make him profoundly disillusioned and cynical? Did it have a profound impact on it? I would say it was probably the opposite. He he loved the glory. You know, he's um, he, he's you know famous in the newspapers. Uh, he's audiences with the king. He was a lowborn fellow uh, from a working class family, and you know he's meeting the king. He's meeting you know the admirals are confiding in him. I think he he really loved it. But if he did, then to to, to become a spy, to inform yeah. on your own country and your own side, what what? What drove that? Was it just material interest? Was he available to the highest bidder? I think there was, there was obviously he was very, very financially motivated and the Japanese offered him a lot of money. Uh, the other thing that, that, hap- that, that comes out in the uh, source documentation is he felt discriminated against because of his class. Uh, you know, there's the, there, there's the commentary that uh, your wartime hero is not good for a peacetime military. And uh, he was told uh, fairly directly that in the post-war Royal Air Force, he was not going to have a bright future. And uh, he perceived that to be because of his class. Oddly enough, he's the reverse of the many of the, the upper-class spies of the 30s and 40s who were working for the Russians. Yeah, Philby comes to mind in, in particular. So yeah. he was a, a working-class boy. He never went to university. Yep. What were his politics as a member of the working class? Was he uh, was he a supporter of of labor of socialism? He never talked about that. Um, I, I've never seen any uh, documentation on that. But I don't think he was a socialist or anything. He was um, 
you know, a practical pilot, engineer, war hero who really enjoyed uh, being in the action. And he was, of course, in the action, not just in the air during the First World War, but in, in Hollywood, uh, in Beverly Hills. He yeah. associated with Amelia Earhart, Charlie Chaplin, Graham Greene's brother. How yeah. did he get into that network? Was he simply famous as a, as a war hero from the First World War? Yeah, and um, you know the uh, the early Hollywood stars, uh, very very a lot of British there. You know, you mentioned uh, you know Chaplin and uh, Karloff, and there, there's you know plenty of others. You know, Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone, and uh, you know a lot of these folks were um, you know in Hollywood at the time. Uh, they had a lot in common with him, and they had a, a private club um called the British United Services Club in uh, in Hollywood where these British actors could go and um I don't know what what kind of British food they eat but you know have their drinks and stay away from the stars they probably ate marmite did they I I would assume it was something like that probably something slightly stronger than that so he he became part of this British expat club with guys like Charlie Chaplin it was quite an achievement and was this as a consequence or independent of his spying? Did, did they go together or did he lead these parallel lives? Uh, it really went closely together. You know, he told the Japanese uh, at one point, um, he, he said a lot of things that he never actually did, but he said, look, there's going to be a war between the U.S. and Japan at some point. Yeah, he said and, that about in, in the mid-30s. So he was one of the yeah. first people to actually understand that. Yeah, and it, it was, you know, it, it seemed obvious to him. And um, and what he said is, look, you know, you have a hard time spying in the U.S. anyway. Um, you know, there's a color line back then, right, where a Japanese face would not be admitted into, you know, the, the Russians had a lot easier time recruiting spies, right? Uh, just the ideological people. Um, but yeah, so, he, you know, he's recruited in and he says to them, look, when the war starts, you're not going to have any other agents in the U.S. You know, your own consulates will be closed. Your embassies will be closed. You're going to need information. And what could be better than a bunch of Brits of, uh, you know, America's new When allies? did he say that, Ronald? He said that to the Japanese uh, at this time in the early 30s. But even the Japanese in the early 30s, there was no inevitability of war. Did he just sense it in his bones or was he speaking metaphorically? There, um, I, you know, he was obviously um, trying to inflate his own value. There's no question about that. But, you know, one of the um, one of the things that I've done, you know, doing the research in the U.S. and Japan, I, the common historical consensus is that uh, the Japanese Navy didn't want war with the U.S. Um, war was not inevitable. And um, a lot of the initial source documentations you find in Japanese do not tell that picture. They tell a, a lot about the Japanese Navy, even from the, the earliest days, saying, look, this is our potential enemy. And a lot of them were very excited to, uh, to get into a fight with America. We are speaking with uh, Ronald Drabkin, who lives in Japan, who grew up uh, in Los Angeles, talking to us from California, author of an intriguing new book, Beverly Hills Spy, about a British First World War pilot, a hero who fought off the German Air Force, who became a Japanese spy during the 1930s. I want to remind everyone. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. 
Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. It is indeed invaluable, and you can subscribe to Liberties at uh, Liberties Journal or LibertiesQuarterly.com. Uh, Frederick Rutland was invaluable to the Japanese, uh, I think, at least, according to Ronald Drepkin. How essential was he, Ronald, in terms of their intelligence and their decision to, to, to declare war and bomb Pearl Harbor? Yeah, there's several layers. Um, you know, some things we don't know, a few things we do. You know, the Japanese um, uh, diaries that we found in memoirs of the admirals said that he was profoundly helpful in actually creating the first Japanese carrier strike force and its initial evaluation. Um, we also know that the Japanese planes evolved very quickly in the 1930s, and we know that he, um, it's firmly documented how much he stole in information from Lockheed and from Douglas and, and even from Boeing. And it's also documented that the engineers from the Japanese aircraft companies actually came to the US to meet with him. Um, so there is all that. And uh, the other thing that's uh, fairly new information is that they sent him to Pearl Harbor quite a bit. There's even one story. Um, in 1939, he takes his daughter with him to Japan. They meet the Jap Japanese Admiralty. And on, on the way back, they spend a week in Hawaii. And his daughter goes to the beach. And he goes and talks to the folks at Pearl Harbor. And yet... He wasn't executed. I mean, in some senses, one would have guessed that once all this came to light, once Pearl Harbor was bombed, he mm -hmm. would have been treated as the worst kind of traitor. So, so what happened once Pearl Harbor was bombed? Yeah, so he was, the, you know, the biggest problem was his, he was embarrassing. Uh, he was embarrassing to the, uh, you know, the FBI. He was embarrassing to the U.S. And he was very, very embarrassing to the uh, British. And right before Pearl Harbor, uh, he had been sent back to, uh, to England um, to try to keep him quiet. You know, there's uh, the FBI documents and the State Department documents say, look, uh, for all these Japanese spies, uh, for God's sake, keep them out of the news. Um, we don't want this out there, right? Uh, a few days. Oh, it was so embarrassing about how much they actually reveal. Yeah, you know, he's operating in in plain sight, hanging out with Charlie Chaplin, you know, for for eight or nine years, and no one figures this out. Uh, it's very, it's extremely embarrassing to the British because they never mentioned this to the Americans, right? Um, you know, the Brits were busy trying to get the Americans to come into the the war <laughs> themselves. Bless you, and. Um, you know, and, and they're like, well, how do we bring this up? You know, there's MI6 documents saying, how do we bring this up with the Americans that, you know, he's been here working. And the guy they should have brought it out with who would have been embarrassed, he had many embarrassing secrets, was J. Edgar Hoover. How was he involved? And did he miss all the signals? He missed a lot of signals in the 30s. He missed a lot of signals. And this, this was certainly one of them. Um, he didn't trust this fellow and had him, you know, removed from the scene. So... Um, you know, Rutland made a very credible case, I think, to the uh, the FBI. There's been many, uh, you know, signals that have come up uh, that have been revealed, were revealed to the FBI over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. But this was a very credible witness, right? This is someone who says, look, I've been working with the Japanese Admiralty for 20 years. My good friends I made in the Japanese Navy in the 20s are now running the Japanese Navy. Uh, and I, I know exactly what they're up to. You know, they don't tell me everything, but I, you know, if they're going to attack, I will know. 
and I will tell you. And uh, this was ignored, right? This this warning was ignored, and um, and uh, Hoover definitely had this all, um, you know, covered up. Uh, it's very clear in the FBI documents, which say, um, you know, there was one time when one of the uh, FBI agents mentioned Rutland in some uh, forum, and he got a nasty. Uh, letter saying, um, look, you know, yes, you're quoting a story, a figure that it, that is true, but do not mention this to anyone outside the FBI to prevent, to prevent embarrassment to the agency. So it's uh, perhaps it could be explained by, uh, J Edgar Hoover's obsessive anti-communism, mm -hmm. uh, conceivably, I guess his what many people consider his homosexuality, mm -hmm. um, and his, also obsession with with race which obviously african-american identity which i guess doesn't really touch on this so he he so to speak uh rutland slipped under the uh, under j edgar hoover's radar yeah you could say he was just ignored or not believed or you could you could just say you know hoover really didn't have japan on his radar very much you know he was obsessed with communists, socialists, uh, African-Americans, um, you know, lots of you know, bootleggers, right? Uh, Japan wasn't as much on the FBI's radar, at least for quite a while. How much, in your view, does your book reveal the, the, the rather shame, this, sh this episode as, as a shameful period in American intelligence, and particularly the FBI? There was, of course, no CIA back then. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the discoordination between the U.S. intelligence agencies is, is very clear, right? You know, the FBI says this, the Navy says that, the State Department says this. Uh, they're all going in different directions, and, um, and they're not really talking with the British intelligence agencies either. And to your point, uh, Andrew, you know, the CIA was created uh, after this time, and the point of the CIA was it's a you know, central intelligence agency, right? Uh, to to prevent lack of coordination. And, um, you know, some of the folks that are, you know, the folks on the back cover of, of the book who endorsed it, you know, retired um, U.S. Naval Intelligence folks have, you know, pointed out very clearly that 9-11 um, happened and it was very similar, right? 9-11, there were clues all over the place that were not put together. And, um, you know, it may be a, a, an issue today where there's clues different places and to threats to the to the U.S. and to the West that are that are not, together were there, were there in your view at least might there have been japanese spies within the fbi or within the senior people within the american government uh there were not i actually um one of the uh the, the we found a, the ex-head of one of the ex-heads of the japanese navy we found his diaries um and he gives a list of every spy he has in uh in the u.s um and uh they weren't really that good at it there was one at the library of congress so they were amateurs on both sides. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover missed all the signals and the Japanese who were rather blithe too. Yeah, their intelligence was, was uh, were not very good. Yeah. So. so then what happened? So Pearl Harbor happened. Yeah. He got sent back. Was he put in jail? Was he, he interrogated? Was. Yeah. Yeah. There was um, a British law at the time that allowed suspended habeas corpus. And basically, any uh, any enemy of Britain could be jailed without trial, and he was uh, he was one of those folks. So a few days after the uh, uh, the Pearl Harbor raid, and and you know Britain enters the U.S. enters the war, uh, knock on the door, a couple constables, and they take him to Brixton Prison, and they let him uh, rot away there with um, 
you know, with all the, the British fascists and the, you know, British Nazi party people and such. So was he publicly disgraced or he became simply someone that disappeared? Um, the, the British intelligence folks did try to keep it quiet, but it, it definitely got out. Um, some of his friends from the, the Royal Navy were, were trying to get him out of jail and were giving speeches to the, to that effect. So yes, he was disgraced, but he also had a strong argument that he was, uh, he was innocent according to him. You've written this book. It's the first serious book on the subject. Um, is it an attempt to rehabilitate him? What, what are you saying that will surprise other historians of the period? Uh, I'm not going to say he was uh, a good man. He was definitely, a, you know, a, a bad fellow. Um, he he definitely betrayed his own country and uh, and did a lot of damage to uh, to the U.S. Um, but it, you know, it is complicated. Um, you know, there's strong arguments that a lot of the stuff he did was not illegal. Um, you know, a lot of intelligence gathering, you know, today is, you know, is not. And um, yeah, I don't want to rehabilitate him. I, I wouldn't say that would be the right thing to do. Yeah. Are there any warnings in the book in, in the 30s uh, about celebrity and the cult of celebrity? We began this show talking about the, the cult of celebrity that was definitely on show at the Super Bowl yesterday. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the British celebrities in Hollywood come across quite well uh, in this book. Um, you mean the yeah, Chaplins of the world? Yeah, I, uh, I don't have evidence of Chaplin, but I definitely, uh, Boris Karloff is all over uh, uh, the FBI files. Uh, the, the redacted parts of the FBI files may contain Chaplin, you know, but I don't have evidence of that. But these British uh, actors went to the FBI and, and they said, look, you know, we, we suspect this is, there's, some, there's something wrong here. And they brought the FBI into the picture here. I mentioned Lindbergh earlier, suggesting that he might be the, the British version. Lindbergh, of course, became associated with America first. Did, did, uh, did Rutland ever meet Lindbergh? Did he have any connection with him? I don't believe so. Um, I certainly, he met a lot of people, but that would be one uh, no. And was he involved in any way in American politics, in the American first movement, in uh, isolationism? What were his, uh, did, uh, and of course, with FDR, I assume, did, if, if you'd have mentioned the name of Frederick Rutland to, to FDR, would, he, would, would that have rung a bell? Would he have ever heard his name? Uh, you're asking Andrew some strange questions, things I've never even, uh never thought of really. Um, yes, I would. Yeah. Uh, Roosevelt was, you know, a Navy guy and, uh, Rutland was the most famous Naval aviator of the first war. So he would have known him for sure. But he, he wasn't familiar with Rutland as a spy. It probably didn't make it up to, to the president, I would assume. Um, it did make it up to Churchill. That that came up a lot. I'll, oh, I'll... Churchill. Well, if Churchill knew, then presumably FDR would have known. Yeah. I mean... Uh, Wasn't it, it... Wouldn't it have been Churchill or the British... Uh, the, 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 the British responsibility to, to inform their allies of what was happening? Uh, it certainly seemed to be. Uh, and they certainly did not. And uh, it went both ways. You know, there's this... Uh, there's this FBI, there's this one quote from the MI5 files where they say, you know, the FBI returned this fellow to us. 
and they say they have enough evidence on him to shoot him, right? And then there's the quote below it saying, we think they're, they're being metaphorical here, but we don't know. They're not sharing with us. It's almost as if uh, it's a mashup of Monty Python and John le Carré. Yeah, I would say so. Finally, uh, Ronald, your own personal history um, is bound up with this. You note that your obsession with espionage history began as uh, a young child in L.A. when you understood that your own father had been working in counterintelligence. Tell us about that and how this triggered uh, your lifelong interest in espionage. Yeah, uh, yeah, my father was working for military counterintelligence um, in Los Angeles. Um, slightly later time so but uh lots and lots of overlap uh with the rutland story you know rutland was stealing information from lockheed my father was doing counterintelligence at lockheed um so you your know, father was on the good side so to speak he was working with americans yeah well no he he was yeah i found his manuals and his graduation diplomas and yes he was working for u.s intelligence so and what was he doing uh chasing communists basically uh he would just this was after the war this was after the war. And why did that inspire you to write the book and, and have such an interest in counterintelligence? You know, when, uh, when my father passed away, I was I was just really intrigued trying to figure out, you know, what what he had done. And, and he had never talked about it. But I was thinking, well, gee, you know, at some point, this stuff's going to be declassified. Um, so I wrote into the FBI and I found a bunch of you know, names of espionage people in, in, in Los Angeles in the period. And I wrote in and, and this file from Rutland came back and I was just uh, enthralled by it. Some people have associated the name James Bond with Rutland, but of course, as Le Carre reminds us, there's nothing very romantic, really. It's a rather grubby business. Uh, <laughs> Frederick Rutland was anything but James Bond, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, well, I mean, he was glamorous. So there, was, there is that. But... Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's yeah, James Bond would be on the, the the right side, right? So it's a sad story. It's a tragedy, ultimately. Your your Beverly Hills spy. It's a tragedy, and there's no good people in it. There's there's no there's those no, the good guy does not exist. <laughs>